Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I'm going to share a thought I had with you this morning. As I woke up, I just woke up early. For some reason I said, well, if I lay awake for 15 more minutes, I'll, I'll get up. And sure enough, I just lay awake for 15 minutes. But during that 15 minutes, I just had this thought. Pride is our greatest enemy. It just keeps, <laughs> keeps, well, God hates pride. He's so clear. Proverbs 8, I hate pride, arrogance. And yet, I'm so proud. I've been a Christian 50 years, but I'm still so proud. <laughs> and I uh, thought, wow, how is that possible? And this thought came to my mind. Jesus was was always right. Like, I think I'm always right. In fact, my kids got me a, a coffee cup that says, of course I'm right, I'm Bob. <laughs> and uh, Jesus was always right. And he was perfect. And he was perfectly humble. And it, I just realized that even if I am right, like, that's no reason to be proud. It's no reason to be stubborn. It's no reason to be, to, to insist that, no, what I'm doing is fine. And it just, I share that just as, as hope for us as we, as we seek to grow in our marriages and in our, in our parenting. We just never stop growing. There, we never get to the place where we go, yeah, I got it. I got a good, you know, good substance here, good, good case, stuff to draw from that, I'm good. We're just always learning. We're always growing. So I pray that's the case this morning. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, Julie and I have six kids, four girls, two boys, girl, boy, boy, girl, girl, girl. We had two miscarriages between the fifth and the sixth. And soon to be 22 children and expect we'll have more grandchildren. I'm hoping for like 25, 26, 27. We'll see. I have 35 cousins, so it's not a, a big deal. Um, I'll never reach that, but we've got still girls who are still producing, so we still have hope. <laughs> In fact, what if my daughter says? The big, never mind, I want you to go do it. <laughs> all right, and here's what we've learned after all those years of parenting and grandparenting. No one is ever ready to be a parent, and you don't, you don't know what you're doing. Like, you know, 40 years in, you still don't know what you're doing. Uh, so that should be hopeful. Uh, you are just always learning. The task of parenting is never done. We are, we are very much involved in our children's lives still. Just this past week, we've had, we've had significant conversations with at least three of our children about different life situations. It is one of the most thrilling, adventurous, scary, joy-filled tasks that God has given to us. Parenting. And at the same time, it's, uh, well, yeah, it's, 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 it's joyful and it's fear-inducing. Um, it, it can fill you with faith and it can bring you to your knees. Uh, fill you with hope and make you realize, I have no way out of here. This, I don't know what I'm doing. It's, it's just all those paradoxes together. We're not going to figure it all out this morning, just so you know. But I do believe God is going to speak to us, each of us during this time, wherever we are in our parenting journey, um, about how to do what we do with greater joy and greater hope and greater faith and greater conviction and greater trust. And we're just going to divide this into two sessions. One is the kind of the earlier years, and then the other is like the preteen, teen years. I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about parenting in 45 minutes. Um, so we're, we're going to give things that we've learned, things that we found helpful. So beginning with the first, uh, the early years. And how many of you are not parents yet? Okay, great. And how many of you have parents just 10 and, uh, have children uh, 10 and below, 10 and under? Okay, wow. This seems to be the younger side of the room. Not sure why that is. Uh, and how many, uh, you have, well, I guess everybody else has kids older than 10. How many of your kids older than 10? Okay, great. All right, so this is for the first half, the, for the younger half. Three things. The biggest challenging parenting is not our children, but us. <laughs> as much as may seem, that's not true as you're parenting. 
It is true. Our children are a gift from God to us. He planned that we have our children, not somebody else's. And even that's true for blended families as well. He planned, it, he planned that, that be, those be your children. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. They're, they're a gift. They don't always look like a gift. But we're to think of them as gifts. They're a blessing. And though the, the joy they bring is, is through the, the opportunity to shepherd them, their, their smiles, their laughter, their growth, um, you know, there's so many ways that, 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 that children are a blessing, the things they accomplish, the things they achieve. But children are a blessing in another way, and it's the blessing described in Acts 3, 26, where Peter says, God, having raised up a servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's how they bless us. God gives us children to turn us from our wickedness, to draw us to himself, to, to root sin out of us and to make us more like Jesus, to show us that he's bigger and better than we think he is, that God is. Quote uh, Paul Tripp a lot in, these, in this outline, it's not your weaknesses that you should fear, but your delusions of strength. <laughs> That's so true. God gives his children to make us more humble, more dependent, more trusting, more confident in who he is and what he's promised to do through his word, the gospel, and his spirit, to make us like himself. I have found it a lot easier to trust God for being a pastor than I have for being a father at times. It's just, it makes me more dependent. That's the first point in there, in this, in this overall section. Children aren't problems that we're simply meant to fix. God's given me this child so I can shape them and you know, raise them up. In their, and he has, he has, but that's not all they are. They're not a problem to fix. We need fixing as much as our children. So it's, it's God's working in both of us. We parent for God's glory and pleasure, not our own. The aim of our children, of having children, is not to just prepare them for the, for the preschool years or their teenage years or even when they leave home. You're always thinking, well, what's the next step? And it's, it's a joy to hear parents talk about, well, we're in this season, and you know, they're getting ready for this, and I can't believe they're this. And every season is a joy. But here's what we're preparing them for. We're preparing them to stand before the throne of God. That's what we're preparing them for. Not just that they be good moral citizens, although that's, that's better than if they turn out to be an axe murderer, for sure. But that's not the goal. The goal is that they're able to stand before the throne of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the goal. And what, what a goal it is. What, a, what a, a goal that we need God's spirit for and God's help for. It's that day that will show the fruit of our parenting, not tomorrow or not next week or next month or even next year. Children aren't meant to be trophies that we show off to other people. And, and we've recognized that when, when we say our children are walking with the Lord, we don't feel this sense of pride while up, yes, yeah, what we did, yeah, yeah, it's amazing, we're, we're such great parents. And it's, it's just always with the thought of, in spite of like how badly we did, our children are walking with the Lord. He's so merciful. They're not testimonies of our diligence and our faithfulness and our wisdom and our expertise and our willpower and our winsomeness or skill. They're testimonies of God's faithfulness. Just as Israel couldn't get into the promised land and said, look at what we did. It was our, as our children, by God's grace, turn into godly young men and women, we just thank God. We, just, we thank God for the means that he gave us to be an influence on them, for sure, but we ultimately just say, God, this is your doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. They are God's tools to change us so that we can become God's tools in his hands to raise them for his glory. That's what's happening. We can't parent our children in a God-honoring way apart from an ongoing dependence on God. This is another way our children change us. Psalm 127, verse 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, Watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, as many parents do, <coughs> eating the bread of anxious toil. 
for he gives to his beloved sleep. The point there is not that you're, you're going to bed late and get him early, it's that you're doing it with anxiety. It's the Lord who's building. It's the Lord who's watching over. It's the Lord who's giving sleep. It's not that we do nothing. I mean, godly parents are actively involved in their kids' lives in, in all stages. It's just that in all we do, we're trusting in the Lord's work. We're trusting in his power to change the hearts of our children. Another Paul Tripp quote, Parenting is not about exercising power for changing your children. Parenting is about your humble faithfulness and being willing to participate in God's work of change. God has given you authority for the work of change, but has not granted you the power to make that change happen. It's so, so true. Okay, that's the first point for the early years. Second point, in their early years, our children most need our attention, affection, and authority. Our attention, affection, and authority. So actually, I'm just making two points in this this section. But we're going to look at each one of those. Attention, affection, and authority. These three qualities all affect, all, all reflect the way the Lord relates to us. So we're, we're being channels, models, reflections of God's heart to our children. And so in these three ways, we can do that. First, attention. Psalm 32, 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God doesn't just give us rules and walk away. He watches us. He, his, we are called the apple of his eye. He's attentive to us. He's always watching us. We're never out of his sight. We always have his attention. And those of you who are parents know there are so many things that can distract us when we're raising our children. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, incomplete tasks, demands at work, exercise, got to keep my body fit, ministry, sleep, time with friends, reading, cleaning. We need a clean house. Our kids need to know that we are aware of them, especially in the early years. It requires observing them. It requires listening to them, focusing on them, stooping down to eye level with them, getting on the floor with them. It requires saying no. And this is, this is probably what, what is a big part of it. It just requires saying no to a lot of things. Stopping other activities, turning off the phone, putting it down, turning off the TV or the music, closing the computer. Our children need to see our eyes. They need to see our eyes. So many times, you know, our, 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 a young child is, is yeah, mom and dad, okay, and, you know, and we, we respond, and there's just no real connection. It's just a, a command given, you know, or, or an information given. That eye time is really important. When you see someone's eyes, you know they're seeing you. Our children need to see our eyes. They need to see love in those eyes. They need to see Jesus there. They need to see the Father there. They need to see us there. Now, yes, our children need to be taught that there's a time you know, for, for saying something, and you don't just come into a room and interrupt everything that's going on. But too often we seek to parent our kids without really giving attention to them, without really understanding them. So we want to give them our attention. Second thing we want to give them is our affection. <clears throat> yes, uh, Hosea 11, 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught, oh, this is such a beautiful passage, Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, speaking of his people. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. He's reminding Israel of of how he cared for them in the midst of their rebellion. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't it wonderful that when, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, in Exodus 33, turn over to Exodus 34, and God causes his goodness to pass before his eyes. And the first words out of his mouth are, the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving sin, iniquity, and transgression, forgiving the iniquity of the fathers. Uh, anyway, he goes on. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing that's words out of his mouth. The Lord is merciful 
and he's gracious. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sometimes we, we don't do well in affection with our kids because we don't know the affection of our Father, our Heavenly Father. So that, that's where we go for that. That's where we, uh, that's, that's the source of our affection. It's not just a technique, it's not just a method. We have experienced the affection of God for us and we want our kids to know that. They need not simply to know our love, that we love them, but to feel and see our affection. That involves things like holding and touching and hugging and kissing and cuddling. It, it means that no matter how irritated or frustrated or bothered or inconvenienced or bad we're feeling, we don't withhold what God has so lavishly poured out on us through his son, and that is his affection. We are his beloved. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's holy people, chosen and beloved. He didn't do anything to earn that. And affection is one of the things we can most easily withdraw from our kids when we want to teach them a lesson. Don't do it. Don't withdraw your affection. You, you can be clear and you can be firm and you can be authoritative, which we'll talk about next, without withdrawing your affection. God does not withdraw his affection when he disciplines us. It is a sign of his affection. doesn't mean there aren't times when we speak clearly and firmly or even sternly, but Romans 2.4 Romans 2, says it is God's kindness, not his harshness, that is meant to lead us to repentance. So that's affection. And, you know, I don't know where each of us is in that regard. Some parents lavish their kids with affection and, and don't do very well in this next category. <coughs> but I know that for a busy parent, it's too easy to ignore that category and just forget. Our kids need to know they are dearly loved, especially diligent parents. You know, we can be, I want to raise this child to follow Jesus. I want them to know the Lord. I want them to hear the gospel and receive and respond and repent and have faith. And I want them to live for God. And, you know, they need to know your love. They need to know that you love them no matter what. That's affection. Third category, authority. This rarely produces God-honoring results without the first two, without attention and affection. That's why I put it last. But it's crucial for our children, especially in the early years. Proverbs 6.20, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So both father, mom, and dad are involved. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. <coughs> obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Our children need to know from their earliest years of cognition that there is a God who is the center of the universe, and they're not him. And you're not him either. <laughs> there is a God <laughs> who has revealed himself. He doesn't give us authority, just to be clear, for demanding Bullying, manipulating, shaming, deriding, abusing, venting, belittling, crushing, domineering, distancing, being harsh, cruel, selfish, or vengeful. None of those have to do with the kind of authority that God wants us to have in our children. But we can really easily confuse them. I'm just doing what they deserve. They're just getting what they've earned. That's not God's authority. Those are misuses of authority that confuse and mislead our children and misrepresent our Heavenly Father. And I think it's one of the reasons why children of of a, you know, seemingly godly homes turn out not so godly because the way that authority was exercised was more in some of these ways than an authority that's characterized by attention and affection. 
to teach our children a biblical view of authority, we have to submit to it ourselves. They have to see that we are under the same authority. Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not just whatever you say. Whatever I say goes. I said it. You need to do it. To some degree. But if, you, if that's just like the ultimate, that you're misrepresenting what God has told us to do, which they are to, we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Colossians 3.21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And we can become really good at provoking our children. It's, it's euphemistically called pushing their buttons. We know what does that. God says don't do that. And here's a quote from Ted Tripp <laughs> in this regard. As a father or mother, you do not exercise rule over your jurisdiction, but over God's. You act at his command. You discharge a duty that he has given. You may not try to shape the lives of your children as pleases you, but as pleases him. Understanding this simple principle enables you to think clearly about your task. If you are God's agent in this task of providing essential training and instruction in the Lord, then you too are a person under authority. You and your child are in the same boat. You are both under God's authority. You have differing roles, but the same master. So our authority is not ours. It doesn't originate with us. It's derived. And the God who gave us that authority wants us to use it in a God-pleasing way. Paul Tripp again. You must never exercise authority in a selfish way. Why? Because you've been put into your position as a parent to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. What, what a list of adjectives. Beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, forgiving. Is that what our young children are thinking of when they, or actually any age children, any age child, when they think of our authority? We want them to. And I've met parents here, and I've met your children too, and I said, yeah, that, that is happening. They don't see authority as this horrible thing. They see it as beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving. Because that's what God's authority is. And again, sometimes we don't exercise it because we don't see it. We're not we don't see God's authority that way. We see it as restrictive, harsh, angry, sudden. And so that's what we display to our children. So it always gets back to the gospel. We, we do another outline, uh, another teaching, just the gospel-centered uh, gospel parenting. <coughs> you want to be a good parent? Know, believe, and live in the good of the gospel. You will be a better parent than you are before. It really gets back to that, knowing how God has treated us in Christ. So what does it look like practically? This kind of authority. For, for these early years, talking regularly about what God wants us to do and why he wants us to do it with joy. They're not just rules. They're good rules. And they're rules that are meant to be obeyed with gladness. We used to say right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. And that was our mantra. Right away, all the way, cheerful way. That's what you obey. But we, we didn't always say it in a cheerful way. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure we always communicated that. A lot of times you did, but not always. Uh, referencing God's word at planned times and spontaneously throughout the day. There is no single system of communicating God's word to our kids that, that is, that is uh, foolproof. So it's, sometimes it's going to be a plan. Sometimes it's going to be spontaneous. We can't predict it. Obviously, exposing our children to God's word is going to be better than not exposing them to God's word. And if we rely completely on spontaneous moments, we're going, to, we're going to miss a lot. And likewise, if we rely only on planned moments... We're going to miss a lot. So plan and spontaneous moments of referencing God's word. Look at, look at how God made the sky. The heavens tell the glory of God. That's Psalm 19. Isn't that true? It's, we see it right now. Just little things like that where it's not corrective, it's not instructive. It's just God's word applies to all of life. He's good. Distinguishing between God's commands and our preferences and rules. And that can be challenging. <laughs> because we just, we just fall under the category of, well, you're supposed to obey me in everything, so this is what I'm saying. 
Well, no, that, that might be my preference. And, and maybe you should obey me. But maybe I'm just wanting to be God to you right now and make you do this. Just help, help our kids and ourselves distinguish between God's commands and our preferences. Pointing out the consequences of disobeying God's commands. Not just looking down on people who disobey the Lord, but just saying, that's the fruit of this. When someone does this, this is what happens. Bringing appropriate discipline when our commands have been clearly heard, understood, and disobeyed or, regard, or disregarded. So bringing discipline. You know, clearly heard, understood, and disobeyed and regarded. We, I think in our early years, I would tend to just not be as good on that, those last three things. <laughs> Was it clearly heard, understood? Uh, I just know they didn't do it. And would assume, okay, well, discipline, that's the answer. No, I want to make sure. They're, the command was clearly heard, it's clearly understood, and it's clearly disobeyed, clearly disregarded. That should result in discipline. Exercising discipline with a calm, hopeful, and faith-filled spirit, which you, we need the grace of God for, you know, especially if you're a mom at home with you know, three kids under five, or, or any kids, actually. Um, we need God's grace to, do, to exercise discipline with a calm, hopeful, and faith-filled spirit. I mean, we're, we're regularly with our grandkids, our young grandkids, and, and we... <laughs> We're never very far away from what a tantrum looks like. And our, one of our daughters just sent a, a video of their 18-month-old throwing a tantrum. I thought something was wrong with the child. I mean, I, I, I texted, I, I think, is she in pain? Looks like she's immense pain. And so she said, looks like a typical tantrum. Da, 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 just, just hold her, come in. And, and then she texted us a few minutes later, she's fine. Okay. I just had forgotten. But they're not going to let me forget. That, that kids can go crazy. We can't. We can't go crazy. We know the Father. <laughs> we know we have a Savior. Our authority is meant to lead our children to the Savior, but it takes time. Parenting, another Paul Tripp quote, parenting is not a series of dramatic confrontation confession events, but rather a lifelong process of incremental awareness and progressive change. Amen. So what authority does three things for our children. First, it teaches our children how the Lord wants us to live. Just through things like don't lie, don't steal, don't hurt, don't disrespect. It, it uh, teaches them to do what to do. Tell the truth. Be kind, obey, be generous, be merciful, be faithful. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's what, that's what our authority is helping them see. This is, you should do this, you shouldn't do. Second, it shows our children their inability to keep the Lord's commands. Perfectly. If we're really giving them the Lord's commands, they won't be able to keep them. Not if you're talking about the heart as well. Parenting is not a behavior control mission. It is a heart rescue mission. Paul Tripp. It's true. It's not, it's, you're just not trying to make them not sin. It's, we're, we're, we're trying to get their hearts. Children, especially firstborns, can keep a lot of commands. They so want to please. But there's a difference between doing good and being good between the way we act and the way we are. And God's authority exercised through our authority over time reveals, should reveal our children's waywardness, their rebellion, their rebellious hearts, their deceptive hearts, their inability. And then finally, authority is meant to point our children to the Savior who obeyed perfectly. So he could take our sins upon himself, take our punishment for our disobedience. Human discipline is necessary to keep us from harming ourselves and harming others, but it can't change their hearts. It cannot change their hearts. They need to know where hope comes from, and regardless of how well our children may be doing on the outside, they are never beyond the need for a Savior. Regardless of how badly they're acting on the outside, they're <laughs> never beyond their re the reach of a Savior. <laughs> Sorry. Just keep forgetting this. I don't do this often enough. Um, let me just uh, stop this for a second. So let me say it again. Regardless of how good they look on the outside, they'll never be on their need of a Savior. Regardless of how badly they're doing on the outside, they'll never be on the power of a Savior, the reach of a Savior. So we, we never need to despair. We never do think our, think our children are so great that 
They don't need a Savior. We need a Savior. All right, so those are some of the early years. We didn't get into a lot of specifics because I think Ted Tripp has been here a lot and done a fantastic job, as I understand. Um, and there are uh, great examples in this church, um, so I'm not going to get into those. Let's move on to the preteen teen years. As your, as your kids get older, this, and this could, these are broad ways, broad things we have learned through parenting for 42 years. These are the, some of the things we found most helpful, okay? This is, so, uh, first, a misconception when you hit the teen years, a couple misconceptions. One is that uh, you can sit back and enjoy the fruit, you know? You did all the hard work, 1 to 12. Now we just kind of bask in the glow of our accomplishments and just don't think that. You know, one of the advantages of having a lot of kids is you realize it's really not about you. God does make children differently. And, uh, you know, when our first two children, if we just had two children, we would think we were amazing parents. But then God gave us Devin, and we realized we weren't. And, but he taught us an amazing amount through Devin humbled us, and he taught us amazing out through all our children, but especially through Devin. <laughs> uh, so you, you, there, you, you, you're unaware of weak foundations, potential weak foundations. There are new temptations in the teen years, and there's always the presence, power, and deceptiveness of indwelling sin. So that's the first misconception. Second is, during the teen years, the best we can do is survive. And there are a lot of parents who, who go take that route. Okay, hands up. You're, you're, you're mature. You know, I mean, you're, you're of age. You, you know how to think through things. You just, I just heard a teaching the other day. Someone sent me a teaching, a video of a guy teaching. You just said, yeah, you just, you know, increasingly, when they start being a teenager, 13, release them to independence. Okay, this is yours now. I'm not going to say anything about this anymore. Okay, this is yours now. I'm going to, you know, clean, you don't have to clean your room anymore. Okay, you can listen to whatever music you want. And just kind of until they're 18, so they recognize they have the responsibility. I just thought that was really stupid. Uh, I just, uh, you, you, there is no addressing of the heart. There's no, what you're basically saying is just go out and just feast on the world and let's see what happens. I don't think that's, God does not direct us to raise our children that way. Just go try everything and see what happens. He says, no, your commands keep me from the ways of wickedness, from the paths of wickedness. So that we are to be involved. There's, there's a sense of waning control, but it's because we're moving from authority to counsel. That's what's happening during those years. We've had authority in the early years. It's now moving to counsel. And the idea that we can't do anything is rooted more in unbelief than in reality. Unbelief in a God who is able to change a sinner's heart and to work in our hearts as well. I love what Paul Tripp says in Age of Opportunity. These are the years of penetrating questions. The years of wonderful discussions never before possible. You can't have these discussions with your eight-year-old. These are the years of failure and struggle that put the teen's true heart on the table. These are the years of daily ministry and of great opportunity. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to refer to these two scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, where God makes it very clear that we are to have his laws upon our hearts because of our love for him, and that we are to pass those on to our children in every context we can. And then Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Just generally, those are, those are foundations for what we're going to share. Parent with God in the picture. As you get, as your children get older, and this would be true for their, when they're early, but especially when they're older, parent with God in the picture. Keeping God in the picture does a number of things. One, it cultivates a fear of God. Our parenting is simply one act of God's plan to have a people for his glory. It's not just about our family. He wants a people for his glory. And we don't, we don't parent for our own sake. We talked about it earlier. We parent, we parent for God's glory. Keeping God in the picture inspires faith. We're never without God. You know, in the midst of your worst parenting crisis, the best thing we can do is ask, where is God in this picture? What's he doing? What's he up to? We can believe that he's up to something. We just need to remember what it is because we've forgotten it. Can't see it. Lord, open our eyes to see what you're doing. 
Love this quote from Charles Bridges, the Christian ministry. It's addressed to pastors, but I think it's very relevant for parents. It is faith that enlivens our work with perpetual cheerfulness. When you, read a parent, when you meet a parent of teens who is perpetually cheerful, either they're like totally oblivious to what's going on, or they're exercising faith towards God for their children. It commits every part of the task to God in the hope that even mistakes shall be overruled for his glory, and thus relieves us from an oppressive anxiety often attendant upon a deep sense of our responsibility. The shortest way to peace will be found in casting ourselves upon God for daily pardon or deficiencies and supplies of grace without looking too eagerly for present fruit. That's really key. We can exercise faith, and the way to exercise faith is without looking too eagerly for present fruit. We want to see our teens' hearts change yesterday. Like, we want their, their understanding of modesty, their understanding of unselfishness, that there are other people in the world besides them, their understanding of the fear of God, where it's fear of man. We want that now, working in their lives, where they're coming, us, coming us to us and saying, I see it, I see it. That may take years, but it's going to come through faithful labors, through prayer, through dependence on the Lord, through faith towards God. So it generates faith, keeping God in the pictures. Keeping God in the picture produces peace. Being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands doesn't mean being a sledgehammer in the Holy Spirit's hands. It's a different thing. And when we, when we keep God in the picture, we, can, we don't feel it's like it's all up to us. So one thing we learned is our job isn't simply to keep our children from sinning, but to teach them what to do with their sin in light of what Christ has done. To teach them how to handle their sin in light of a Savior. Your children will sin. If you're a young parent, don't live under the delusion that you're going to raise teens who won't sin. They will sin. But glory to God, we have a Savior. And that's what our sin helps us see. Every time they sin, it's an opportunity to walk again. As, as Ted Tripp would say, well-worn paths to the cross. Walk again to the gospel and see, this is why Jesus came. Because you can't do this. Because you keep doing this. Because this is, this is too big for you. Because you didn't even see it. See how deceptive sin is. Jesus came for deceived people. And to get to a place where we are glorying in Christ and his work and his power and his forgiveness and his mercy rather than bemoaning and berating and just, just living in the midst of failure, which is what we can tend to do, and tension, and all those things that come along when, when there are unresolved conflicts between a parent and a teen. No, Jesus, Jesus came to do something about that. And so keeping God in the picture can bring that peace into our lives where we, where we don't feel like, we have to change them. No, God, God's responsible for that. Keeping God in the picture motivates prayer because we, we recognize our inability to produce true heart change in our children will lead us to the throne of grace. And we are praying. I pray, I pray for my children every day. I pray for my grandchildren every day. Most days. I mean, I'm sure there are days I miss. I didn't do that when, uh, in, their, in the you know, early years of parenting. Uh, it just became evident to me that if I'm not praying, I'm depending on something other than God. Prayer is the sign that we depend on God. It's one of the clearest signs that we don't think it's all up to us. So, so it motivates prayer, keeping God in the picture. Love this quote from, uh, I, don't, I don't know who this is. Just, I don't even know where I got this quote, but it's a good quote. Father and mother, can you impart spiritual life to your child? The answer is that you cannot. You can teach them. You can train them. You can preach to them the same gospel that saved you, but you cannot give new life. Do not place yourself in the role reserved for the Spirit of God Almighty. Only He can awaken the dead. Why carry the burden of a task that you cannot accomplish? Call upon the Lord and acknowledge your desperate need. Intercede on behalf of your children to the one who is full of mercy and steadfast love. Let the conversion of your children be cause for humble, patient dependence on the Lord 
not anxious toil and striving. Oh, those are such good words. All right, so that's the first thing. Teens, keep God in the picture. Second, focus on the heart. Focus on the heart, yours and your teens. Both. Focus on the heart. Primary question in Deuteronomy 6 is, what do you love? God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you, what do you love? What are you pursuing? And the primary heart to, to be focused on is mine. Deuteronomy 6, 6 highlights the importance of God's commands being in our hearts first. Colossians 3.21 implies that we can lead our children in a way that provokes them and discourages them rather than helps them. We can communicate the right things in the wrong ways. And so some of the heart temptations that I especially, I'll speak for myself, have experienced over the years, in, in the teen years, include things like, like, just hypothetically here, sinful judgment, where because I, I know this child, I've raised them from birth, I don't really need to have many conversations. I just need to tell them what they need to know because I already know what's going on in their heart. Self-righteousness. I wasn't even converted and I was a better teen than you were. <laughs> I would never respond to my dad the way you just responded to me. Self-righteousness. Oh, anger. Justifiable <laughs> anger. Every time Julie would say, that was really harsh. No, it wasn't. They, they did this. And my response wouldn't be humble. Maybe she's right. Maybe God gave me my wife so I could have another perspective, more realistic perspective on how my words sound. No, it was, that wasn't harsh. Did you see what they did? They deserved exactly what I said to them. That's what I'm thinking. And that's how we justify our anger. Self-centeredness. <laughs> teens can, be some, such a, can become such a bother. <laughs> you know, it's like they have lives now. It's like you have multiple lives going on in your house. You know, when they're younger, you kind of can keep everything in a box and controlled and everything. But as they get older, it's like they have friends, and they have places they can go. And then when they drive, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like multiple things going on here. It just becomes really inconvenient. You know, and, and they come into your room like you're just, oh, so what a day this has been. Oh, so good. Dad, can we talk? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Love to. Uh, and fear of man, big one, fear of man, just, or fear of teen. You know, where, where we just, we want to be on their good side. We don't want to be the ogre parent. We don't want to be the, you know, the parent that all the kids are talking about. You know, and, and I, I tell you, I, I, <laughs> I used to drive Devin to uh, school. Uh, it was like a seven-minute ride, maybe. I could do all of those in one ride. <laughs> we would get in the car, and he wouldn't be saying anything. And I'd be saying, why is he talking to me? I would have talked to him if I was... I mean, I'd talk to my dad if I was in the car. Any adult, really. Could be a stranger, could be a stranger. I'd be talking to him. And he's saying nothing. Why, why is he so self-centered? Why, why is he like this? I just, I just can't believe that after all the input we've given him, that he would treat us like this. This is unbelievable that he could be so self-centered. And I am a pastor. I have raised him to be godly. I have raised him to be righteous, to live for God's glory. Here he can't even utter a word of, hey, Dad, nothing, just zero going on. And, and, this, and I am a pastor, and this is my kid, and what will people think of me as, as I tell them? Yeah, I can't even talk to my kid. On, as I'm driving to the car. So all this would be going through my mind in like two minutes. And I'd say, I would say something, what's wrong with you? <laughs> that, those are my first words out of my mouth. You know, it's like, and then it hit me after a while. Like, if, if I was Devin, I would hate being around someone like me. You know, I wanted to be an influence, but I just, I, I wasn't like that around anybody. No one else that I sinfully judge, get angry at, be self-centered towards, you want the approval of, as much as him. I didn't do that with anybody. And yet here I wanted to be an instrument in God's hand for his, for his change. 
So God had to work on my heart to, to show me what was going on there. And be sure to involve others in that process. Ask other, receive the counsel of your spouse, your care group, others, even your children. Even your unconverted children can give you good info. Do you feel more corrected or accepted by me? Do you feel I make more of the good things you do or the bad things you do? Do you feel more my affection or my authority? Just little questions like that. And they may not express it lovingly, but just listen. That can be really, questions like that can be very helpful. Uh, and to discern in that, discern the difference between complaining, gossiping, and seeking wisdom. Because we can just kind of vent to our friends about our children, and that's not, that's not God-honoring. It doesn't serve our kids. But we can seek counsel. Know the common temptations of teens. As we're thinking of hearts, very similar to ours. Pride. To know something is to know everything. It's kind of their mantra. Fear of man. Everyone's watching me. Everybody knows everything I do. Self-centeredness. Everything in the world is like right here. Everything that's important is right here. Lovers of pleasure. And it's really lovers of temporary versus eternal pleasure. Instant versus delayed pleasure. Comparison. You know, I'm held to a higher standard. Well, you know, Robbie's parents won't, will let him do that. Well, we're not Robbie's parents, and you're not Robbie. Somehow that never seems to solve it, you know. <laughs> you always hope it does, but... Uh, foolishness, you know, what I do doesn't have consequences. That, those are some of the common teen temptations. Focusing on the heart helps us navigate a lot of the gray areas in the teen years, like music, friends, clothes, internet use, phone use, events. We found it unhelpful to just assign labels to those. That's worldly. Listening to that music is worldly. Well, that t we, need to, we need to talk about <laughs> why they want to do this. How long do they want to do this? How much do they want to do this? What for? The question is not, what are you doing, but what direction is your heart headed? That's the question we want to find out. That's, we always want to seek to answer that question. What direction is your heart headed? Where are you going? What, what, what are you longing for? What do you desire? Because your life is going to follow your desires. And we want to help them discern uh, the difference between biblical obedience and biblical wisdom. You know, there are some commands that the Lord gives, and there are others that are just about wisdom. So, we, so the way that would look for us, say if uh, one of our teens wanted to, to go to a gathering, and we, we weren't sure that was the best idea, rather than a yes or a no, uh, we'd, we'd talk to them about it. We'd say, so, so who's going to be there? And you know, why do you want to go? And what do you think you're going to do? And Okay, how about this? You go. Do you think you'll be an influence there? You go, and let's talk about how it went when you come back. And then we'll, we'll figure this out, you know, whether that was a good idea or not. So you're, you're, you're helping them know what their heart is doing rather than just trying to put guardrails in their life so that they don't sin. Remember, our, our, our goal is to help them to deal with their sin in light of a Savior. I mean, we're not just we're throw, we're not thrown onto the wolves. We're putting guardrails up, but we're giving them room to err. We're giving them room to see what's in their heart so that we can show them that Jesus really is a Savior. Focusing on the heart helps define maturity and earning trust. Maturity for a lot of parents is defined as a child being able to make good choices independently. That is an aspect of maturity. Here's something that we learned is a better way maybe to define that. Maturity is mistrusting my heart enough to pursue self-disclosure, teachableness, and counsel on my own. Tell your preteen that. Okay, here's what, we're, here's what we're building you towards. Here's a, you know, not you know, the day when you can do everything on your own because the wisest people in the room aren't doing everything on their own. The wisest people in the room are getting counsel all the time. They don't trust their hearts. So you're, 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 they're, they're volunteering information about what they've done, what the day's been like, what happened when they went somewhere. They're receiving input when it's given. And they're asking for it. They're seeking. Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? 
It's the difference between our teens asking for permission and asking for wisdom. Teach them to ask for wisdom, not permission. They want permission. Can I go here? Can I do this? Can I read that? Can I listen to that? Let's, let's talk about wisdom. I don't want to say yes or no. And you can feel like just a yes or no machine as your teens get older, uh, or the more you have. It's just, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, it's very frustrating. Teach them wisdom. All right. Finally, engage. Uh, uh, folks in the heart should cause us to excel in encouragement. Yes, it should. Uh, last point. Engage your teen compassionately, creatively, and consistently. Engage compassionately is, just means don't... It's distinct from lecturing, correcting, or giving a monologue. It's coming alongside. That's what, what compassion is. Last quote from Paul Tripp. Take time to enter the world of your teenager. Know what he faces every day. Know how he's emotionally and spiritually gripped by these experiences. Know where he's being tempted and where he's succumbing, succumbing, understand what the worlds of home, school, work, and leisure look like to them. Just get into their worlds. Understand it. Engage them consistently, meaning daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Without focusing, we will miss a lot. One of the best things we did for our teens was to meet with them individually. Meet with the boys, girly with, Julie with the girls, and you know sometimes we mix that up, but just consistently. It said to them, whether or not the council was that great, it said to them, I value you enough that you are at the top of my calendar, and I will make sure I get time with you. Um, and this is really great. I just got an email from my son this morning, uh, my oldest son, just saying, hey, this year I want to be more intentional about uh, conversations, so can we set up a regular time to talk? So he's, he's 40, just from 40. That's beautiful. That's God's work. But it began back when he was a teenager, and we were, we were pursuing those kinds of talks. And then finally, engage creativity, creatively. Just, just not one format, one time. It could be any time, anywhere. Meet formally, informally, as a family, individually. Uh, just find out about their lives. What are they doing? Uh, yeah. And finally, make trusting in Christ appealing. Your children will learn far more from our lives and our passions than our teaching and correction. They will learn far more from our life and our passions than our teaching and correction. They will learn far more from our life and our passions than our teaching and correction. So, model a functional love for the Savior and the Gospel, a functional love for God's Word, a functional love for fellowship, a functional trust, in God's sovereignty. I think we'd probably close there. It's a good thing God has called us to. It's a great adventure. God will give us grace, faith, and great hope for what he wants to do in us, through us, in our children.